welcome to the Visitors Might Be Listening, the unofficial V podcast. I'm your host, Lewis Ryan, and I'm here to talk about all things V with you. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Lars Emerson. Lars, say hi. Hi. It's good to be here, Lewis. It's good to be here, too, Lars. I'm very excited to talk about V. Yeah, you and me both. Yes, uh, here on The Visitors Might Be Listening, we're a podcast dedicated to talking about all things V, the science fiction franchise which started in 1983 and has endured as a cult classic for almost 40 years. Lars, how long have we known each other? Oh, God, Lewis, since 2013? Yep, so uh, getting close to a decade. (laughs) Eight years at least. We're, uh, We're good friends. I would say we share similar interests in movies and television. Don't you agree? I, I, I would. We, we tend to, with a few major exceptions, we tend to like pretty similar stuff. Well, no matter the case, whether we like something or not, the conversations between us uh, regarding movies or television, they're always interesting. Yeah. Back and forth. And uh, I think today will be no exception. We've picked a subject that one of us is familiar with and the other, I believe, was not familiar with at all. I, I had only seen the picture and heard the name. Yes, I am the resident V expert for the next few weeks. While Lars, this is a learning experience for him. So I guess just to address this briefly, I sort of stumbled upon the idea of pitching a V podcast almost sort of as like a last minute idea, sort of something I just came up with a few minutes before uh, our pitch meeting. And I was surprised that you gravitated to it so quickly. <laughs> I must say. It sounded interesting. You know, it's uh, it's a sci-fi miniseries that I, I guess is always, like, I know nothing about. So it seems like the best thing to just kind of jump in. And it's pretty, it seems pretty digestible, right? It's only, we're only going to be covering, uh, you know, five major segments. Yes. Uh, so far, we'll only be covering the first two parts of the original miniseries and the three follow-up parts that constitute the Final Battle sequel miniseries. But there is a lot to cover with V, and I'm excited to talk about it with you. I'm excited that you got to watch it, and I'm excited to hear if you enjoyed it, if you did not, and why. So I guess before we get started, I should uh, address me being the V expert for this project. So I first watched V back in 2008, in the fall of 2008. I had just moved back to New Jersey, and I had just also acquired an iPod, a video iPod. And so for whatever reason... I was already aware of the existence of V for some reason as like a pop cultural relic. And I saw it was available on iTunes. So I purchased it and I watched it on my iPod video on the bus rides to and from school. And on any opportunity I had during free time during school, I watched the first two parts of V, the miniseries. And I enjoyed it greatly. Cut to... The year 2021. I haven't really thought about V all that much. I guess when I watched it originally, it was on the forefront of the 2009 version, the revival coming back to ABC. So I guess that might have been in the back of my mind. But cut to 2021, and it is a very different America than America was back in the fall of 2008, pre the election of Barack Obama. Wouldn't you agree, Lars? It is a very different country out there. It is. It's It's been a rough uh, 12 years. <laughs> And so I I got to thinking about V again, because it's just been sitting there in my iTunes library. And as someone who can't afford to buy new new things, new media, new 
new old television to watch, I decided to rewatch something I had watched 12 years ago. And uh, so I actually did. I rewatched V in the very beginning of this year, like January 1st. And January 3rd is when I finished. Once again, America has changed since then <laughs> due to the events of uh, January 6th with the storming of the Capitol. And I must say, V V just has never seemed more relevant wouldn't you say, Lars? I, I agree. A, a bunch of resistance fighters trying to overthrow the government does seem awfully relevant, Lewis. I would disagree, but you, when you say <laughs> resistance fighters fighting the government, I think if you believe what you... Like, the, the government isn't even who we're fighting. It's more like the quote-unquote lizard people. <laughs> I, I don't know if I've gone that far down the uh, the rabbit hole, but yeah, the lizard people, sure. <laughs> I mean, metaphorical lizard people. Yes. The people that believe in uh, QAnon theories, Jewish space lasers, yada, yada, yada. I, so, I agree. It's very, it seems very topical and the capital insurrection was bad. Yeah. So I, so anyways, that, that was how I came to rewatch V in the beginning of this year and how it's sort of stuck in my mind these past three months. thought it would be a good thing to rewatch for a podcast and discuss. I'm sure there's plenty of other people out there watching V, rewatching V, picking it up for the first time. People who have watched it, you know, for the 20th time. People who watched it when it first aired in 1983. Um, and we just thought we'd rewatch it again and discuss why something like it has endured for so long as a pop cultural touchstone. Before I get into the background of explaining what V is, I thought I'd just uh, ask you, like, what, if anything, you knew of V before we started? Almost almost nothing, uh, to the point that I really just thought it was, like, one show from the 2000s, um, which is <laughs> obviously incorrect. I, I knew the V logo, which is, like, uh, I, I discovered in the first episode, it's not blood, it's actually paint. Um, it's, like, this red painted V and you know ufos um that is kind of the extent that i knew it i didn't realize it was something from uh, originally the 80s and i didn't realize that there was so much more of it that it was like an actual big franchise right i didn't know anyone in it i didn't know who created it i didn't really know what it was about but now i do <laughs> so before i get started with the background info i just wanted to add clarify or ask were you, were you aware of the 2009 version on abc i don't know if that's what i was aware of or if i just thought that it looked like some like one of those i feel like sci-fi miniseries kind of had like a moment in the in the like early to mid 2000s that's just like kind of like the firefly era or like the certain versions of Battlestar Galactica had something as well. Yes, Battlestar Galactica, the 2004 version, started as a miniseries. Do you remember Dinotopia? I do not. I can remember being in my old childhood home in South Orange and like commercials for like Dinotopia. So I, you are correct that there was like a moment for miniseries in the 2000s. Although I'm not sure if, because it was definitely a thing in the 70s and 80s. And I'm, I don't know if it dropped off in the 90s and came back in the 2000s or if it still if it was just a through line straight through for like 40 years. But, yeah, there was definitely a moment around 2000 where miniseries were happening again, because I can remember Dinotopia. There was the Dune miniseries with William Hurt. Hashtag Dune 2020 <laughs> not being a thing. So you were not aware of V at all, like not even one percent aware not yeah, I, I knew just the logo, is as far as I would say. That was the only thing I knew for sure. 
And I would say you might have been getting it confused with V for Vendetta. <laughs> no, that that one I do know. I, I, I realized there was no circle, so I figured that out. But that was confusing when I was like 15. All right, so I think it is time for us to get into what V is and what's all about. V, as we both know, is a, a miniseries from 1983. It is uh, two parts each around an hour and a half long. So it's a, like a three-hour feature film, essentially, split into two episodes. The mastermind behind V was Kenneth Johnson, who, are you, you, you're not aware of Kenneth Johnson at all outside of this right now, are you, Lars? I, I'm not. So Kenneth Johnson is a person who's worked in television for a long time, started shortly before V, I guess, in the 70s. His biggest claim to fame, other than V, might be he originated the Incredible Hulk TV show with uh, Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno. He was the director of the first uh, pilot movie. And he's been involved with other shows since, like uh, Alien Nation, for one, that was in the 90s. And lots of other TV projects he's been involved with as director. So he was the writer and director of this miniseries. He was sort of inspired by Sinclair Lewis's book, It Can't Happen Here. Is that a, a book you're familiar with at all, Lars, knowing you have a background in politics and uh, interest in history somewhat? Yes, that, that I'm familiar with. Do you think you could uh, give us the topic sentence of It Can't Happen Here? It's like a dystopian novel that's about, like, basically a Hitler type coming to power in the United States. Yes, it's basically a, a polemical work uh, explaining the folly of America or some other country looking at what happened to Nazi Germany and saying, like, oh, it couldn't possibly happen here. We couldn't possibly, a person like Adolf Hitler couldn't possibly become democratically elected here in America and initiate such a massive takeover of the entire government and right. the country. So Kenneth Johnson was fascinated with this idea of fascism and the idea that it couldn't happen here, that history couldn't repeat again. Someone like Hitler couldn't rise to the levels that he did. Uh, before and during World War II. Originally, he was going to write this miniseries, and it was going to be more straightforwardly political. It was going to be a much more dry work about the government and fascism taking over. But NBC, in their infinite wisdom, looked at the hottest movie trends going on right now, and one of them was Star Wars, which was definitely at the height of its powers in the early 80s, on the heels of Star Wars, 1977, and Empire Strikes Back. Kenneth Johnson took the old sort of Rod Serling approach when he did The Twilight Zone. He, Rod Serling wanted to address social ills of the day on television, uh, but, you know, the network wouldn't allow something so controversial to be on the air. So he pitched The Twilight Zone, which was much more speculative fiction, and was able to slyly address issues of the day through metaphor and science fiction and fantasy. Kenneth Johnson reworked the idea into V, an alien invasion story, which is a non-too-subtle take on fascism and Nazi Germany. I don't think that's in dispute. I, I expected it to be... Because when, when you were pitching this to me, you sort of, you, you sort of explained that. You're like, oh, it becomes about, it's basically about fascism. Um, and I expected them to be like a lot more subtle about it for longer. But then <laughs> it gets... Yeah, it gets pretty uh, obvious, uh, probably halfway in at least. Yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't say that the 
lack of subtlety is a bad thing necessarily. No, I, I actually think it being very on the nose, they did it in like the right kind of way. It's like it's so on the nose that it's like you realize, oh, it's so obvious that this is fascism, but it's also so obvious why they didn't realize that this could become fascism. You know, kind of how fascism works. Yeah. And I feel like it's sort of illustrated through um, the Bernsteins with sort of their polite unwillingness to call a spade a spade <laughs> and just being like, oh, it, it's fine. Everything's fine. There's no way. This could be a repeat of what happened. It, could, it can't happen here. So Kenneth Johnson wrote and directed all of the, all three hours of this original miniseries. It aired on NBC Part 1, aired on May 1st, 1983. Lars, if I may ask you, did any big science fiction films come out in May of 1983? They did. Uh, Return of the Jedi came out in May of 1983, Lewis. Yes, I realized that just this morning. It would have come out a couple weeks after this, though. I, but, I believe it was May 25th. But definitely Star Wars fever would have been in the air. Yes, there was definitely a lot of hype for Return of the Jedi. To say the least. Yeah. And there was a lot of, I don't know if hype's the right word, but there was a lot of anticipation for V as well. Because it aired at that special time that we are too young to remember before basic cable really was a thing. There were only three channels. Lars, if you had to take a guess about what percentage of the viewing audience, as in people that were watching television at the time across the country, were watching V Part 1, what would you say? 10%. 10%? Do you want to yeah. go higher? I, I'm talking about people back in 1983. Yeah, I, I know. But like to think that 10% of the nation that owned TVs all sat down and watched it's the premiere. Not, it's not people owning TVs. It's people that were watching TV at the time. People were, that were actively watching television. At, in, that, in that hour and a half time span? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, sure. Let's go with 24 five percent would it surprise you to learn that v had a 40 share as in 40 percent of the viewing audience was watching v part one when it aired that would surprise me i i i honestly can't think of anything other than like the super bowl where that would be the case today yeah so uh, even like even presidential debates wouldn't hit that number just because like they're on different networks right yes yeah it's a very different television landscape the, the series finale of alf Got 20 million <laughs> viewers. <laughs> and it was canceled. <laughs> it's unthinkable today. We live in such an entirely different TV world. This was the same year that uh, the MASH finale ended. Famously, the highest rated scripted episode of television. The only things that have been higher have been Super Bowls, as you said. MASH was actually one of the programs that V was competing against when this aired on May 1st. MASH was leading the comedy lineup on CBS. Well, so, did they air at the same time? I'm not sure. I'm going to guess that V probably aired over a three-hour block from like 8 till 11. This is just my guess. Because I can't imagine the total running time of V Part 1 is an hour 45. And I can't imagine that it was only 15 minutes worth of commercials that were inserted in between. So I'm going right. to guess it was a three-hour block. I, I don't know this. I haven't checked. If I got this wrong, please send in angry emails, Kenneth Johnson, to let me know <laughs> that I'm wrong. So I'm going to guess it aired from 8 till 11. And on CBS, it was a, apparently a slew of comedy shows led by MASH as sort of the anchor 
program because MASH was, as you know, or vaguely aware, it was extremely successful. And this was the last season of MASH, season 11 of the Korean War, the war that kept on giving. (laughs) So this was NBC. NBC at the time was the lowest rated of the three networks. They were kind of in a slump at the time. Cheers had just started. Uh, you're aware of Cheers, right? Of course, the Frasier spinoff. The <laughs> Frasier prequel. <laughs> and uh, soon to be the new Frasier reboots prequels <laughs> prequel. People out there who watch television are probably aware that when Cheers premiered, it was the lowest rated sitcom. It was literally like last on the list of like 120 shows. Uh, but then it, it famously got renewed and then became the landmark comedy program that sort of defined sitcoms of the 1980s. So that's sort of, I brought that up to illustrate the point that NBC was on a slump and V was sort of a, a minor success for them or a major success, depending on how you look at it, depending on your understanding of early 1980s television practices. Because at the time, there was no DVDs. There was no VHS. Uh, You had to hope that you caught a rerun if you missed something when you originally aired. And you had your choice of watching one of three channels. And so you wanted to pick the thing that everyone was going to be talking about the next day at work at the water cooler. And for a brief moment in time, that was V. And V caught on, much like how Star Wars caught on, V caught on. And it's surprising to me, it's not surprising to me that it caught on, but it's just, it's interesting to look at it. We, we probably should talk about this after we discuss the episode itself, but that's um, something so intelligent and something about something so intelligent sort of captured people's minds, albeit for a brief moment in time. I'm trying, I have difficulty imagining something like this being as successful today as intelligently written as maturely presented as it is i don't know if that's fair i think there's a lot of pretty mature i think if it were made today it would be like a lot darker you wouldn't have the like light kind of friendly elements that this has at times but i don't know i i feel like i do think i do think it's kind of in a wave i think nowadays we have very intelligent and kind of like dark gritty television i do think that probably died off for for a few years in between the time when v would have aired and you know the last decade or so i do think that if v were made today the president would probably be featured in it a lot more than he is in v yes it would definitely probably be more political it'd probably just be like homeland with aliens (laughs) right i i was surprised not to get too into the plot, I was surprised that the United Nations is like kind of the de- the definitive government at the beginning of it. The the Secretary General of the United Nations. <laughs> yeah. Can you can you even name who the current Secretary General is? Is it Antonio Gutierrez? See, this is an educational podcast, folks. Yeah, You're you learning put me all on sorts the, of things. Put me on the spot there. <laughs> all right, so I guess it is time for us to get into part one of V. Let's hop in, Lewis. <laughs> the water's fine. <laughs> I guess I, sh- I will say, uh, if you're interested in watching V, it is available on plenty of platforms. iTunes being one, Amazon Video being another. It's on DVD, and it was recently released on Blu-ray as part of the Warner Archive collection. You can pick up V, the original miniseries, and V, the final battle. They're both on Blu-ray. 
They have made their way onto physical media and digital streaming, and they are here to stay. We are fortunate that this has not been a cultural artifact lost to sands of time, as so many things have been. Should we also let people know, Lewis, that we are going to be discussing everything that happens in the first episode? So if you haven't seen it, it's probably going to get ruined for you. Spoilers for part one. If you don't know that the visitors are lizard people from outer space, please <laughs> stop listening now. Although that is something you weren't aware of, right? That they were... I, I was not aware of it until I looked looked up V and saw that image. Yeah. This is one of the things where it's like, I don't know how I knew about V, but it's like I knew that twist already. I mean, it's the way... I mean, we can talk about this when we actually talk about it, but it's, it's not even like a twist because it's just sort of like the premise revealing itself it's not even like they save it for the end of part two it's revealed i don't know halfway through part one before we get into that let's talk about the first part of part one of the so lars what do you remember about the opening what what stood out to you well so so the opening is is that helicopter sequence right mike mike donovan yes uh, who reminds me so much of Mark Hamill. It, he's so Luke Skywalker, it drives I, me crazy. I was going to tell say that. It's like I was going to ask, like, what actor does this remind you of? I was uh, I was thinking you were going to say he reminded you of Harrison Ford, because it's like he's a weird blend. But he he's looked, too, he like, looked, boyish he have, to be Harrison he has Ford. The, he has the hair, definitely, yeah. of Luke Skywalker. But in terms of attitude and demeanor, he's definitely... Kind of a Han Solo-ish rogue type. <laughs> I guess he's just a little too whiny to be Han Solo. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely an engaging opening. We're in El Salvador, and I think it's a pretty clever opening in terms of it's spelling out the theme in, in a smart way. Well, and before you even see that, because it's presumably there's some sort of civil war or something going on in El Salvador. Um, but the very first thing you actually see is a, is a dedication, right? It's dedicated to resistance fighters um, everywhere. Past, present, and future. Yeah. So that sort of sets the tone there. And then you get into this battle in El Salvador. And then there's like a very dramatic change in tone. <laughs> I, I don't know. I thought the whole helicopter sequence was really well done. I was like very instantly hooked. To me, I feel like literally like the first shot to me reads as like something very modern. How it's uh, we're, we're seeing Mike's Mike's point of view. He's a he's a cameraman who works for the news. And it's sort of like this modern shaky cam mock documentary of him interviewing a freedom fighter in El Salvador. And he they're talking. He's talking about all the wounds he's gotten. This is sort of like the theme being illustrated, how the wounds are sort of meaningless to him against the cost of like the blood of his people and the fight for freedom. Yeah. And that that all happens. It's like a a minute or maybe a minute and a half long shot. And then we cut and we see Mike for the first time. And then we're sort of off to the races with sort of this helicopter chase. But I agree with you. It's it's a very well done piece of uh, action cinematography that sort of grabs your attention immediately. And then it ends with the capper of well so like he, um mike and his like producer I, t- tony. tony tony they get in a car and they start driving away and this helicopter is like chasing at them and firing at them and it like suddenly stops and it's like very intense action sequence and the helicopter like flies away and the camera just like abruptly like switches over and there's like a giant ufo in the sky it's like i i don't know i was expecting like a way 
more drawn out. I think that's how I feel about like basically everything that happens in this show so far. Is I was just expecting them to really draw it out in a way that modern shows do. Um, but it's like, no, there's like a UFO in the sky, and that's what this is about now. Yeah. Um, which I, right. I, I was very like even more hooked right at that moment. Yeah, the show definitely gets to it. There's a lot of stuff to get to, and it gets to it fairly quickly. I do think if you were making this today, it would probably you probably wouldn't even see a visitor until like the end of the first hour, episode one. It'd yeah. probably be them coming down the ramp. You know, we cut to the second half of the credits, the production credits, and then we come back, and then it's sort of we're introduced to our large ensemble of characters played by a variety of different people as they all watch the 50 motherships landing on Earth over major cities. Uh, California, of which gets two, in San Francisco and Los Angeles, if you can believe it. They don't they don't waste a lot of time, but they, like, do it right. Is It's just, like, they capture, like, the fear and uncertainty really well. And then it kind of builds up to, like, this countdown, right? Is Is, like, there's, like, this loud humming kind of emanating from the ships. And then, and then it like starts broadcasting in the native language of who's ever watching it. And it's just like 20, 19, 18. And you're like, oh my God, what's about to happen? Are they going to like get to like, that's never a good sign, right? I feel like everyone in the show reacts pretty calmly (laughs) to something like that happening though. I would be freaking out. Uh, I was like freaking out as a viewer. And then it's just like, hello. (laughs) I don't remember what they say exactly, they say, but it, but it's, it's they say uh, we want to meet with the Secretary General of the UN on top of on the roof of the United Nations building, right. which is kind of an anticlimax. <laughs> the United Nations. Did any of the introductory scenes stand out to you? Because one stood out to me, just the scene of uh, the scene of Elias. We're introduced to the character of Elias. He breaks into a house, steals a tape recorder. He's going to steal a tape recorder, and then he he turns on the TV for whatever reason, I guess to make sure it works, and he finds on every channel his news of <laughs> alien motherships over every major city. I thought that was a pretty memorable moment, too. Yes, uh, I did not particularly like that moment. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask why? It introduces a black character by having him break into a house, and that's how he stumbles on the the news. I don't know. It seemed pretty... Well, Lars, I mean, the the white, all the aliens are white people. <laughs> <laughs> Is that true? I, I don't recall any uh, black visitors. Interesting. I had not noticed that. I think it's similar to uh, Star Wars, how the Empire is all British actors, right? They're doing right. the classic Roman Empire. All the Romans are played by British actors, even though they wouldn't be British. Yeah. The Empire is sort of in that monochromatic, think Nazi, quote-unquote, mold. Right. Well, anyways, I, I like the scene of a lot. It's just funny to me, just imagining the idea of someone breaking into your house and then aliens have invaded, just the, yeah. <laughs> the randomness of events. I, I think they do Elias some service later, but we'll get into it. After the countdown, like we said, the Secretary General assembles and, you know, everyone's in a panic because, you know, aliens have landed and we they they have no idea what these aliens are, what they're about, why they're here, what's going to happen. So we meet the secretary general on the roof and one, how would you call it? Like a, a runabout ship lands on the roof and the secretary general walks in. And uh, what happens after that? So, so I appreciated how this scene was done as well. 
I like, so yeah, the Secretary General walks into the little shuttlecraft. He's invited, of course, <laughs> um, but they don't show you any of his point of view, right? You don't actually know what he sees or what happens in there. You have to follow along with kind of everyone watching at home, more or less, right? And he eventually comes out, and I have questions. This is when I start to have questions, right? Because you don't see what happens in there, and you don't see what happened to him. And he comes out and says, they're peaceful, and they've invited us to, like, here's their leader, and they've invited us, he's going to invite us up to their ship, and, like, yes, basically so he, all is well. The Secretary General seems very nervous, one way to say it, when he walks in, and he, when he comes out, he seems very happy when yes. he comes out. Almost, I mean, you could say he's relieved, but it seems a little bit suspicious. I think I know what you're thinking, but we'll just move on and go to the introduction of John, the Supreme Commander as he's introduced, of the visitors. What did you think of John when he comes out and the first impressions? Well, so he, he comes out and he he and the rest of the visitors, they wear like these sunglasses because things are too bright. And it reminded me so much of, of, of Jim Jones. <laughs> it's like he's out there with like his sunglasses. Jim Jones, like the Jonestown cult leader, right? And he's like kind of preaching the gospel of his people. And it's like, oh, we're here. We're friendly. You know, we need help with getting your resources. And we're going to show you um, our science if you um, can help us out. It's like a little unsettling, but in a... In a in an amusing way. Yeah, it's it's John is played by Richard Hurd, who some of you might know as Mr. Wilhelm, who is George's superior at the Yankees on Seinfeld. <laughs> Sorry, I said George, and it took me forever to say Seinfeld. On Seinfeld, Mr. Wilhelm was George's superior when he worked at the Yankees, season six through eight. So it, it's sort of he's sort of an affable presence, I would say. John is immediately disarming. It's sort of the phew, and sort of just quashes. Uh, Oh, these aliens, they look and act just like us. Yeah. Pretty cool. Except for the fact, like you said, that they wear sunglasses, they have their distinctive red uniforms, and their voices, modified voices. Yeah, uh, it's like, it, there's like, like a deep undertone or something to it. Yeah, there's like a vocoder effect applied to them. Yeah, so John comes down and he explains that the that the, the visitors, as they call they call themselves or that they're called i guess it doesn't matter they're the visitors uh they come from the fourth planet of the star sirius and they need help because they're running low on resources and they want our resources so they come to earth to some of the rectory plants to not steal to borrow cryogenic material instant freezing material for whatever purpose but regardless the visitors strike up a friendly relationship with the people of earth and that sort of begins sort of their subtle secret takeover of everything and we're just sort of introduced more and more to all the other side characters i would say to you lars what would you like to talk about in terms of character roulette who who struck you as interesting yeah, so I didn't really think about, I, I didn't really ever break it down, like, character by character, honestly, because I don't really remember all of their names. Just because you uh, were talking about John <laughs> um, and how he was in Seinfeld, the cast of this miniseries was, like, entirely unrecognizable to me. Did any of them go on to do anything else? We can start with Willie, if you want to talk about Willie first. Because sure. Willie, there's there's a visitor named Willie, who, who gets called Willie, who's assigned to the rectory plant, harvest the cryogenic material. And Willie is sort of like an affable, friendly visitor. He's sort of 
Uh, we were introduced to the visitors. They're all very serious, very militaristic. Before we get to Willie himself, do you remember? So the plant that Willie is at is owned by the the man that Mike's Mike's Mike Donovan's mom is seeing, Mike's evil mother. <laughs> right. And so he puts a bid in for his plant to be one of the ones that the visitors visit. And when the visitors come down, there's a, a marching band. Yes, yes. I, I wrote this down. I, I liked that scene a lot, too. It's like a great contrast, right? Well, I, I was wondering if you could explain it, given between the two of us, Lars is a, a huge Star Wars fan, Star Wars expert. So I was wondering if you could just uh, explain this scene a bit. Yeah, I love the Phantom Menace. It's great. So so it's like there, there's like a marching band. It, it, it seems like a high school marching band. Yes. I, uh, Robin, Robin Maxwell is one of the she's playing the flute. I, it's a. There's a whole lot of stuff going on when she sees Brian, the visitor Brian, who she's attracted to. She's playing the flute, which is obviously a very phallic looking object. So there's lots of subtle themes going on. But anyway, yes, it's a high school marching band. And they're playing the theme from Star Wars as the shuttle carrying the visitors shows up. I don't know that the marching band is doing like a particularly good job. There are like moments where they're definitely off key. Um, or things sound kind of disorganized. And also, that, like you said, the one character's, you know, straight up stops playing to look at the visitor um, or to, to ogle the visitor, I should say. <laughs> so the visitor shuttlecraft lands and they start like unloading and there's like 200 people and they're just like in such like r- r- rigid like lines and they're like yeah, perfect. It's a, it's a very regimented formation of yeah. visitors. It's yeah. like a clown car, but extremely serious. Yes. Um, and it's just, a, I, I don't know, I really liked the scene. It was just a very good contrast between, like, kind of the, like, disorganized excitement of the people on Earth with, like, it's kind of the moment you real, realize, and a few characters start to realize, it's like, oh, we may not actually, like, know what we're dealing with. Because there's just so many of them, and they are so ordered. Yes. I just wanted to bring that up to you because I want, I'm pretty sure you noticed the Star Wars music yes. almost immediately. Yes. <laughs> Which yes. goes hand in hand with uh, NBC wanting this to be another Star Wars. It, do, it does remind me a lot of, of Star Wars. It is very, just from like a character standpoint and kind of like a production standpoint. Oh, I find that interesting. But anyways, well, let's, let's move on to, to Willie. So Willie... <laughs> is one of the visitors at this plant. Willie stands out almost immediately because he's, compared to all the other visitors we've been introduced to, uh, John, Diana, Stephen, he's, he's like, bumbling. Yeah. He, he goes well, he's around. not supposed to be there, right? Is he's He was trained to go to, like, an Arabic country. Yes, he was trained to learn Arabic. So he goes around yelling, I'm just, I'm just. And, of course, uh, the waitress who's catering uh, everything at the plant, uh, figures out that what he's trying to say is, I'm lost, I'm lost. Willie, believe it or not, Lars, became sort of the breakout character from V. He received so many uh, fan letters. I'm not even joking. Willie is played by Robert Englund. And I don't know how much of a horror movie buff you are, Lars, but Robert Englund famously portrayed Freddy Krueger in the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Oh, get out. So I think the oh, first yeah. I think the first nightmare came out in 82, probably around October. So yeah, this is definitely this was definitely a big role for Robert Englund. 
in addition to his already big role of uh, Freddy Krueger. I had no idea. 1984 is when A Nightmare on Elm Street came out. Ah. So this probably, yeah, this was like his breakout role. He probably was able to get uh, the role of Freddy from uh, the strength of this. Yeah, I don't know that I have, I don't know that I have like a ton, honestly, to say about individual characters. I I think like the most memorable one is the is the old man who like survived the holocaust so let's let's talk about the two families we've got the bernstein families and the maxwell families our window into the series is basically through people and residents of los angeles we're we're told of glimpses of because this is a worldwide event of stuff going on around the world but our setting is basically the city of los angeles and the surrounding suburbs and we focus on two families who basically live on the same street either next door or across the street from each other, we've got the Maxwells and the Bernsteins. So uh, I guess we can start with the Bernsteins if you want to go ahead with uh, any thoughts on them. Yeah, I, I think I think so far their family is the most interesting other than probably uh, the character of Mike um, that we were talking about earlier. There's like a, there's a grandfather character, like an older man. Abraham. Like a, yes, thank you. Who's like a Holocaust survivor. So he's kind of very suspicious from the get-go. Then there is his his son. Yeah, his, his son, son right? Stanley Bernstein, who, if, if I, I just can say, because you asked about uh, if any of these people are recognizable, George Morfogan portrayed uh, Bob Ribadow on the HBO series Oz for all seasons. <laughs> oh. And because uh, we mentioned him earlier, Elias was played by Michael White, who, was, who played the character Omar White, for the last two seasons of Oz. So hmm. two people from Oz. I don't know hmm. if they <laughs> knew each other. If they, I don't know if they ever had scenes together in V or if they had scenes together in Oz. It'd be very interesting to look into that. But uh, go on about uh, the Bernstein family. Sorry to interrupt. No, that's no, okay. So his, yeah, so he has the son uh, who's married, you know, the parents in this they're, family. They're very coded as Jewish. Yes, they are, but they are more, this middle generation is more like, oh, things are going to be okay. Yeah, oh, they say they want they're, peace. They're, they're very, they want their, they want things to be good, right? They're in denial, almost. It, yes, yes. And then they're, they they're, have. They're very privileged slash denialed. Yes. And then they have a son who is obsessed with the visitors and ends up becoming like a, a visitor youth like yes yeah, so the visitors, basically nazi youth equivalent yeah the visitors start a program to get young people between the ages of 12 and 20 they say involved with helping out the visitors and daniel daniel's basically sort of the the focus character of this family and in the maxwells we sort of have robin so uh what did you think of daniel if anything when we're introduced because i feel like he has a very i don't know if memorable is the right word but he has a very distinct introductory scene that I kind of wanted to talk about. Is his, the introductory scene is the one where they're sitting on the lawn? No, I, I think his first scene is when he comes home and he talks to his father or grandfather about how he quit his job, left his job. I don't know if you remember this. Nah, he nah. Worked, well, I'll just describe the scene first, where he comes home and he his father acts surprised that he's home and that he says he quit his job because the manager said that the till was short that like money was oh, missing. Yeah. 
And I feel like it's a very interesting scene because uh, I don't know about you, but when I was watching it, I feel like Daniel, it's almost like a Schrodinger's cat where it's like in a typical drama, it's like we'd be made to feel sympathetic. And it's like you sort of feel that way on first watch, but then watching it again, you sort of like, I don't know if I should be that sympathetic to Daniel <laughs> right. at all. Yeah. So by the end of the episode, Daniel's pretty far, pretty far gone. Yes. He, he I mean, his family, like believes he may betray them because of how like in with the visitors he is and he like really toes the party line for the yeah, visitors. I would, I would say that's like one of the standout standout scenes of part one uh St stanley daniel's father and his wife lynn just talking about daniel in the yeah. living room after yeah. he's been part of the <laughs> the visitor youth for for a while now so they're watching the news about the visitors the visitors have started a campaign against scientists pretending and creating that there's a conspiracy of scientists that are out to destroy the visitors and so stanley is watching this on the news and he gets very angry about it and daniel sort of leaves the room and then lynn's sort of like you can't talk like that around daniel and he's like why we're not scientists and they have yeah. this discussion about would daniel turn us in they seem yeah. like unsure if yeah. their son would trust them or not and it's very it's very scary and it's like yes. you, the, you the viewer like you don't know whether daniel would do it or not right you're like well did he hear and then two would he actually do that to his own parents yeah and so da daniel is pretty much on the side of the visitors he's our our window into how some of the young people view him and then on the flip side we have robin maxwell who's a teenage girl, her introductory scene is what you were talking to before. She and Daniel have a scene on the front lawn when the motherships are in the sky. Yeah, and she's like, I don't want to die a virgin. It's basically the gist of kind of what she's saying. Yeah. And you, and um, you, it's fairly obvious that Daniel is like infatuated with her. I, I don't know that I got that impression, though. It's like he's so, I feel like he like comes and goes in her life. Well, it's sort of like uh, she's the girl next door. I, I, I got it from just the his physical acting in the scene when he's like putting his arms around Robin on the lawn. I don't know why Robin can't tell, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. It's like <laughs> red alert. Yeah, I, th their family I think needs a little bit more development for me. I was less, I was less interested. Yeah, she's infatuated with uh, the visitor Brian, who's like a Swedish male model <laughs> in terms of looks, and she is not interested in Daniel at all. No, because he's a creep. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, um, the, the other pivotal scene is the Maxwell family trying to leave Los Angeles to go into the the mountains, the woods, and they can't because of police barricades. They turn back to seek shelter with the Bernsteins, uh, moving into their pool house. And Robin, the whole time, sort of acts like a spoiled brat, sort of not realizing the gravity of the situation, right. given that her father's a scientist. I don't know if you remember the scene when Daniel comes home and it's raining and Robin's there. Yeah, and she tells him that they're hiding people in, like, the pool house. There's this other scene that I feel it's very, I don't know if daring's the right word, but where it's, like, almost like implied consensual sex arrangement where it's like daniel's hoping to take advantage of the situation with robin not realizing that robin does not is not interested in him at all it's it definitely could have if it was made today it would definitely probably have been more explicit more overt but i feel like it's just just on the right side of classy the way it's handled where you see the light sort of go out of daniel's eyes 
Right. I'm trying to think of other... The other character that, like, really... I, I can't even tell if he did or did not stand out, but, like, the, the like, Wall Street investor bro and his, like, nurse girlfriend, I thought they, they cracked me up. Because <laughs> he's, yeah. like, he's like, oh, what's this going to do to the market? <laughs> his, his girlfriend, Lars, is Juliet, who is a biochemist med yes. student, not a nurse. <laughs> Well, she works in a she works in a hospital as a biochemist, I guess. Yeah, she, but she's yeah. a med student. Yeah, that was one of the things rewatching the whole Wall Street boyfriend just sort of adds nothing. Yeah, they try to throw in like a little tension. It's like, oh, people are canceling like contracts with you because maybe you have a scientist girlfriend. But I, I just thought yeah. it was like funny. We can talk about Juliet because she's sort of the uh, the Princess Leia, if, if you will of this uh, mini-series. <laughs> Not to yes. give too much away, because she ends up sort of le- leading the uh, charge of scientists and their friendly associates to start a fight against the visitors. Because they, they realize she she's interested in getting visitor DNA just naturally because she's a biochemist, but then they all start to notice that like weird things are happening with this scientist conspiracy. They, re- they realize that it's like, they must be afraid of scientists. There must be something to uh, take them down from within. So they she basically starts like a resistance cell in Los Angeles. Mike, at this point? Yeah, I, I guess we've exhausted the things we're gonna talk about in terms of that. It would be just a lot of table setting of all the characters and how they relate to one another. It's honestly like a lot of characters. It's like 20 yeah. different characters were meant to keep track of we didn't even talk about the gardener <laughs> the spanish gardener that they oh, have the illegal yeah. immigrant yeah yeah so many characters but yeah let's get down to mike let's get down to the overall plot of the visitors so we have our protagonist mike don mike donovan a newsman lars how would you describe mike to if you were introducing him to someone where it's like hey here's mike he's kind of an ex-guy <laughs> he's got a very taut face his like facial structure is very interesting to me. Um, he's I don't know he he's he's like a little he's a little brash. Very he seems very like committed to getting getting the scoop, getting the best video, even if it puts him in danger, which we see you know kind of at the beginning of the movie with the helicopter scene, and then towards the end of this episode when he like stows away aboard a shuttle to like so so that they he can see them when they don't know they're being watched right and i think that's when you i mean the audience is basically clued in at this point but that's when like you start to really realize things aren't going to go go so well did did you happen to notice that mike the the top of his shirt is always unbuttoned the entire episode i i didn't notice the entire episode but yes he's very he's not he's definitely meant to be like a han solo-ish swaggery yeah. type of character he's definitely right. he, he has no problem at all being an action hero yes and i think it's interesting how you were saying he's committed to getting the scoop sort of like getting at the truth which i think is sort of if you want to look at it metaphorically analytically that's sort of like the undoing of fascism is exposing the truth and mike is just sort of like the champion of truth no matter what yeah. if you want to get super deep into it yeah I, I mean i think he's a good like narrative hitch for us to follow. So Mike manages to sneak aboard one of the visitor shuttlecrafts. There are tiny shuttlecrafts which are filled with like hundreds of people. <laughs> yeah. And he makes it to the mothership. And what happens on the mothership, Lars? You want to tell us? 
Sure. So first he like gets off. He somehow gets off the shuttle without anyone noticing. I, that's still <laughs> kind of confusing to me. But he goes and like hides behind like in this corner and watches the visitors unload their product from the refineries. Right. And one of the supervisors is like, oh, man, uh, it's a shame we have to bring all this like up here because we're just going to end up dumping it. And it was just like, what a convenient conversation to have that exact moment, you know? <laughs> so then you're like, OK, well, the visitors are clearly up to no good. Mike discovers that he's been sitting in front of this like air vent the whole time, which he then slips into and it gives him, you know, viewing into the like crew quarters or i guess what it is um and at first he sees a conversation between diana yeah diana uh, i remember her <laughs> and in which they basically say like uh, they kind of like reveal their plans right is they reveal that they are you find out that they're not good and that they want control of Earth, and that it's going well. What what clever way is this revealed to the audience? I don't know if clever is the right word, but what, what shocking way is this revealed to the audience? With, like, what they're eating? Yes. Yes, so they're eating, and at one point Diana's, like, entire mouth, like... What are they eating? Well, that, that's what I was kind of unclear on. Is it Are they eating, like, hamsters and mice, or are they, they're, like, they're eating... Hamsters, supposedly. No, those are hamsters and mice. They're eating live creatures right but it's not there i guess what i was confused by is that they have them on their ship so i wasn't sure if it's like a tribble or something you'll find out in part two but they were not making up that they need resources to yes. put it one way yeah and she like unhinges her jaw to eat one of these it's like okay that's kind of creepy and then i guess he sort of like keeps walking through this air duct and he and sees the important thing to note is that he's getting this all on video with his right. camera Right, <laughs> with unlimited battery. And he he sees, like, another, like, crew quarters in, like, a bathroom, and he sees another crewmate, like, pull his eyes out, but he can only see, like, the, this guy's back, right? So he just sees this guy pull eyes out and put them, like, by the sink, like you would your contacts. And the guy turns around, and he's got, like, these lizard lizard eyes, and he can see Mike hiding in the grate. So... A fight ensues in which Mike kind of like tears at the guy's face and like his skin, his fake skin is falls off and it's revealed that they're like lizard people. And that's like, oh, wow. That's like the if you didn't know that they were evil because they said they're evil and they're eating, I guess, hamsters. <laughs> now, you know, they're lizards. Mike conveniently makes his escape off the mothership. Yeah, very, I'm not really sure how that worked out either. <laughs> they do it very quickly, where you, it just it shows him getting onto a shuttle, and then it just cuts to him at the the news station, about yeah. to go on air. Yeah, and give the scoop. I don't know if you noticed this, but I like the little look of just like the news director asking, like, Mike, uh, you ready to go on? Mike's just like, yeah. <laughs> He's like shrug. He's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I like that sequence a lot too. Is you know, it, it's the typical like network countdown we've got like breaking news here's how we're gonna do it and it's like the 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 kind of like the director of the program he's like oh camera one camera two switch 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 and it's like breaking news bulletin it goes live and then like it, the new york uh distribution cuts out and then like another distribution cuts out and they're like oh, what what's going on and it's like at&t has been like 
cut. Ma Bell has dropped us. Right. And then a message from the spokesperson for the visitors, who is actually a human and is Mike's ex-sex partner, is she comes on and, and gives kind of like an announcement that they're like taking over the airwaves to stop misinformation and that Mike is bad um, and he's, you know, in league with the the scientists who have now supposedly blown up all these refineries and are committing supposed terrorist acts, which is obviously all not true because you saw Mike's point of view. And Mike is the character you've been following for a lot of that last 20 minutes. So then Mike becomes like a fugitive with his tape that proves that they are bad. Yeah, so Mike Mike's basically a fugitive on the run. He makes a a copy of his tape where he, he takes the original. It doesn't really matter. But uh, yeah, everything goes really quickly. What, what Lars failed to mention, because it's kind of addressed really quickly, is that the visitors basically declare martial law and apparently yeah, have yeah. subsumed the world's governments, which is why, like we were addressing earlier, the president and the government are not really a factor in the miniseries at all. Yeah, I, I actually have some questions at this point, Lewis. So basically what follows for much of the rest of the episode the shoe has dropped and the visitors have sort of terminated their plan to take over the planet earth they've terminated their plan they they've initiated they flipped the yeah. switch right um and, it, and it's like we we find out that they've assumed control of the police but any police who wouldn't follow along have like there's like a police character who kind of becomes part of the resistance what, team yeah. led what by else? Juliet, and then there's a scene that shows like the visitors arriving or like managing like a military base. And it's like the visitors have kind of taken control of the military. And there's a, there's a, I don't remember who's watching them do that. Is it Mike? Military base? It, it might be Mike. It, it's not the, with Juliet and the other resistance members at the end, right? When they're stealing no. the microscopes. No, it's before that. I think it's Mike. Like, and he's watching the visitors, like, managing kind of the checkpoint into the military base. And there's, like, a bunch of, like, you know, like, Air Force planes and stuff in there. And he, and he says, like, quote, of course the military are cooperating fully. They are all under house arrest. Why? Why does, what does that mean? I don't understand why the military is cooperating. Is, is it, why? Well, they've, they said that the governments have basically agreed to the martial law because of the, the conspiracy in their eyes has been real. Whether whether that is true or not is left ambiguous. We sort of uh, glossed over the fact the visitors have the ability to, they seem to be able to kidnap people and replace them with duplicates, which Tony figures out by noting that, is it the secret, it's one of the, one of the scientists that went missing or? Yeah. It, he seemed to have switched his dominant hand from right to left. Yeah, and it's that seems to be the one one of the flaws in their plan is that everyone they kidnapped was right-handed. So it's left ambiguous whether the governments actually agree whether the president is in on it. I guess the people in the military are just sort of left to assume the best about the situation that the president is on board and the military should help the visitors. But I do think it sort of feeds back into the theme of like you say of like uh, with Juliet's resistance, like there's the cop who's there, and it's like. I could imagine if you were in a situation like Nazi Germany, it's like the, the popular mood of the day was support Nazis, like the Nazis were the dominant force. And it might have been very scary and uncomfortable to speak out or do anything when you're when it seems like you're in the minority. So right. that might be part of it, too. But it is it is all handled very conveniently where you're not supposed to step into these plot holes. I think it's smart the way they do it with characters, like we say, that aren't in government 
it's just sort of from their point of view where yeah. it's not really necessary. Yeah. I, my other question at this point is, do we know kind of how much time has passed between the visitor's arrival and, you know, basically when martial law is declared? It's not like it, it feels like it's been like a, a week or two, but it also could have been like a couple of months, you know, it's not really clear. Yes, I'm trying to think if any given amount of time had passed or if anything was stated. I can't recall, so okay. I'm not sure. I mean, we're kind of approaching the end end of the episode here. So so to go full full circle with that body switching thing. So we are to assume that the UN Secretary General was that that had happened to him when he initially went into the shuttle, right? Maybe. It's it's ambiguous to yeah. me, which I think is one of the things that helps make it such a powerful story is that it leaves a lot of ambiguities. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I could imagine a situation where the secretary got kidnapped, and I can also imagine a situation where he just comes out and he's relieved. Yeah, that's yeah, that's true, because fascism could go both ways. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's just thinking about the reality. If it's like if you walked into an alien ship and it was Richard Hurd, a guy <laughs> with, like they say in, uh, like Robert Maxwell, the anthropologist says, is like, does he have five fingers on each hand? It's like if, if someone came out and they were like, exactly like a human looks yeah. it would just be an instant relief yeah I, a thing that I ha they also handle pretty well in this last kind of part of the episode is how the very is how the humans turn on each other because it becomes not just about like you know alien versus human or visitor versus human but it also becomes human versus human and we've kind of talked about a lot of examples of that like the couple and their son and the gardener kind of refuses to work for the woman at one point it's like a yeah. lot of like mini scenes like she, that. she works for, she refuses he refuses to work for mrs maxwell because her husband is a, a scientist yeah not because he hates scientists but because people know that he would work for her and that right she was married to a scientist yeah there are lots of scenes of um as we've been saying there's this whole scientist conspiracy sprinkled throughout the episode and we there are lots of scenes where characters are watching the news and they say damn scientists like yeah. we've got Mike's mother, for one, who's we didn't get to address her a lot, but she's a very sort of evil matriarch character, reminiscent of the Manchurian candidate from the 1960s, if you've seen that. And we also get uh, Caleb, who is Ben and Elias's father, the African-American who works with uh, Willie at the plant. He says, damn scientists, too. And, it, and as he says, he's been a victim of bigotry just from the recent past of America. So yeah. and now he's openly against scientists for conspiracy. It's amazing how quickly people seem to turn against each other. I, so I thought all of that was well done where it's like no particular moment is like earth shattering, but it's just like, it just like starts to wear on you how yeah. people are turning on each other. It's a slow set of dominoes toppling over. And I guess just to wrap up the plot of the episode and we can get into sort of final thoughts and trivia and stuff, Mike going to confront his old flame, Christine Walsh, who is now the spokesperson for the visitors. And in the process, he ends up running into Juliet, who is also trying to get in touch with uh, Christine Walsh. And they end up sort of running off together, part of the resistance. Do you want to get into the, I don't know if I, iconic ending? of part one do you want to describe it it's like a group of of, of youths they're like graffitiing on these kind of propaganda posters that the visitors and some humans have put up and he abraham is like the old the old man the the holocaust survivors he like walks up to them he's like no 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 let me show you how to do this right and he like 
spray paints a big V. V for victory over the poster. Um, and then he just kind of walks away and, you know, the, the resistance. Are, the kids are left confused. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but it, it's famous. It's what the V stands for. The V does not stand for visitors. The V stands for victory. And that, um, that's the uh, closing shot. Cut to credits. It's a, it's a hopeful close. Yeah, it's a, it makes you excited to watch part two. Yes. So anyways, now that you've finally watched part one, Lars, would you care to give uh, your thoughts on it overall? Yeah, I actually really loved it. I, I took to it so quickly. It's rare that something kind of catches me right right off the bat like that. I should say the 1980s in general is like my favorite decade for movies, especially. I just I think they just movies don't look like that anymore and they don't like carry that same kind of like vibrancy anymore. I just I love, you know, how you have those like symphonies and their soundtracks and you have that kind of like, you know, cocky acting that I think is just so like brash but never like too masculine. I, I just really like the 80s and I thought that this was I, I was so surprised that I had never seen this, just given how much I love that decade in film, but I don't know. I, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised that I liked it, having said all of that. Yeah, it's, it's something that I, I feel, dare I say, kids should watch it in school. <laughs> but it's every time I watch it, I, I gain more and more appreciation for just how well crafted it is from a script level. Uh, I guess from a script level is really the best thing because on a production level there are there are moments where it, it kind of shows its age. Well, yeah. A bit. Anyway, just to wrap up my thoughts, this is this is a very excellent uh, part one of a mini series. This 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 is good enough to be a, a feature film, which meant a lot more in 1983 when there was sort of the TV and film ghettos, and now TV is just it's all just content really. Like it can go. We've got Wonder Woman premiering on our laptops. And yeah. such. But yes, it's it's a very well done miniseries. It deserves all the success it gets. And my hat's off to Kenneth Johnson, who was asked to do a Star Wars ripoff and just excelled beyond anyone's wildest imagination. This just proves that it's if you're given a task to like rip off something or base your idea off something more successful, you can do incredible things with it. It just all depends on you to have the wherewithal to do something creative and imaginative and special. That's that's such a nice thought. I agree. I'm I'm super excited to watch part two. I literally finished part one and I was like, oh, I got to watch part two. But then I remembered we have to talk about part one first. And I didn't want to get confused. I, I know I finished part one and I was like, oh, my God, I want to record right now just so I can watch the next part. tonight. <laughs> that, that's our final thoughts. Looking forward to part two, which aired on the next night, if you can believe it, May 2nd. Wow. It was a two-night event. Bam. What a what a magical time. <laughs> well, that's cool. I, I'll kind of get to experience it as they did, right? Yeah. Those are our thoughts. V, V is good. Dare I say great. You know, I think now would be a good time to take a break. Hi, I'm Lars Emerson. And I'm Mike Levito. And we're the hosts of the Post Writers podcast, Watching Mates. It's our podcast in which we explore the trends in film under each post-war presidency and reflect on how presidents and the zeitgeist of the era shaped the movies of their time. Episodes air every two weeks, so be sure to check it out wherever podcasts are found or on thepostwriter.com. And we're back. 
Good to be back, Lewis. Let's continue discussing V. Would you like to hear some trivia and fun facts, Lars? Yeah, yeah, hit me. So I've been doing some research. As the resident V expert, I was immune from spoilers. So I, and I just generally like doing research on things. So I did some research on V. So I guess we were talking about this being as good as a feature film. This was filmed in a 16 by 9 widescreen format. So it, with Kenneth Johnson intending to release it as a film overseas. Of course, when it aired on television, it was cropped to 4 by 3 But it was filmed in 16 by 9 as a film. Do you remember, Lars, the scene when Mike visits his son? And uh, yeah, 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 and they have the, like, toys. They have the V playset. So that's, that is actually one of the things that makes me think that it's longer than like a couple weeks, right? Is it makes me think that the, the visitors were there for several months at a time. Could be. That is a, a clue that yeah. tells us how long it is. I, I don't know how long a toy production could be. <laughs> My guess is as short as maybe like three months. If they rushed it out. They could have they could have just recycled a Star Wars toy because some toy companies do stuff like that. <laughs> It's the, the visitor playset. Yeah. Buy it from Remco. I don't know if you you thought similarly to me, where it's like, is that an actual V playset that they made for toys? Would you believe that it is real? I, I would. I would believe it. But it was not available in the United States. It was only available in France and Spain. What? Why? I don't know. Choking hazard. <laughs> Probably. American children are dumb. Do you recall that the weapons the vi the visitors have? Yeah, they're like laser guns. Laser guns. Do you know how much it cost to do a single laser effect? <laughs> I do not. $1,000 oh, every my. time they fired a laser. Well, they do use it pretty sparingly. Yes, which is why <laughs> they use it pretty sparingly. And... Which is why the humans basically resort to using machine guns as opposed to the, the visitors' right. laser guns. Do you know the, the overall budget of this project, Lars, was $13 million. Okay. Uh, $13 million. Uh, if we were to adjust that for inflation, how much would that be? That, that is what I'm trying to figure out. So 1983? Yes, yeah, so it's technically 1982. This... My other fun fact is that this was filmed from October to December of 1982. So $18 million in 1982. $13 million. Oh. Lucky 13 So $13 million in 1982 would be worth $35 million in 2021. That is still remarkably cheap. Yes. I mean, it probably helps that they didn't hire any like famous... They did kind of the Star Wars model, right? They didn't hire any like famous actors. They probably actually saved a ton on their cast. Probably. As you said, Lars, at the beginning, we are uh, treated to a dedication to resistance fighters past, present, and future. But there's actually a second dedication in V. I believe it's at the end of part two, but I'll just, I'll go through it now. Just, it's not, it's not going to spoil anything. Uh, th this V is overall dedicated personally to Dominique Dunn. And I'm pretty sure you don't know who Dominique Dunn is, Lars. No. She was an actress made famous by appearing in an episode of Hill Street Blues, which was a police procedural in the early 1980s. She appeared on the show as a victim of abuse. And famously, infamously, that was a true-to-life tale for her. 
and she ended up being murdered. What is this connection to V? Well, Dominique Dunn was actually cast as Robin Maxwell, and she filmed some scenes, but was unable to finish because she was unfortunately, her life was taken far too young, far too soon. And Hmm. she can be seen as Robin in the opening shot, the establishing shot where we see the Maxwells when Robert is uncovering the skull and we see the mothership. We can see the back of Robin and that is Dominique Dunn. She was going to play until she was taken and then Blair Tefkin was cast as a, a replacement. And she did a fine job, Blair. Anyways, the connection to you, Lars, why I would bring it up, not really a connection to you personally, but that episode of Hill Street Blues was written by Mark Frost. Oh, get out. Yes. And Dominique Dunn and her unfortunate situation is part of the inspiration for Laura Palmer. Oh, what? Who was later famously the subject of Twin Peaks. I'm sure if you've watched uh, Joel Rocco's video essay, Journey Through Twin Peaks, he sort of uh, addresses the whole Dominique Dunn, Hill Street Blues situation. But yes, Dominique Dunn, who was 2B and V as Robin Maxwell, ended up serving as the inspiration for Laura Palmer on Twin Peaks. I had no idea. Wow. Yep. And Kenneth Johnson, obviously taken aback by this, decided to dedicate the miniseries to her. Well, that's nice. So that's about it for my fun facts and trivia today. Actually, wait, I do have one more. I've, I've read about viral marketing campaign for V, apparently. Although I'm a bit dubious about it because I can't find any like firsthand accounts. But apparently they made like real versions of those posters that we see, like the friendship is universal, visitors are our friends, and they would hang them up in like subway stations or whatever. And so people would see these posters. It was just like the posters as they're shown in the show. There was no mention of V being on TV, no mention of the fact that it was a show or anything. They would just have these posters up for a couple days. And then a few days later, the red V would be spray painted across the posters like they are at the end of the show. It was apparently, I don't know, an early instance of viral marketing for hmm. for television i'm like i said i'm a bit dubious about if this is real because i i've just seen it i've seen it on wikipedia and i've seen it repeated in other news articles written in like 1995 about it but i can't find any like firsthand accounts of it if it's real or not but i just hmm. thought i'd mention it yeah that's that's cool I mean, it's kind of odd for something that's like a brand new property right like you'd, well, I mean, you'd think they'd at least mention the the network or something. Yeah, I mean, it struck me as odd. If it's true, someone let us know. If you were there in 1983. Lars, do you have anything else you'd like to add about uh, V? No, I, I think I'm all good, Lewis. I, I like how their, their insignias kind of look like swastikas. In case what? you needed an extra hint. I don't, you can apply this to modern-day America. If it walks like a duck talks like a duck some people won't believe it's a duck yeah all right so nothing else lars no that's all good all right well um i'm glad we had this talk and uh i'm glad you the listeners at home have uh, decided to listen to us and we would like to hear from you about any of your thoughts about v or the v franchise or anything in general uh lars would you care to tell them how they can get in touch with us if they want to yeah so this podcast is a production of thepostwriter.com you can find us there it's uh, just thepostwriter.com there's a contact us form you can also reach out to us on twitter or on facebook and then both lewis and i are on twitter and on 
Letterboxd. I'm at Lars Emerson. Yeah, I'm at the Lewis Ryan on Twitter. And I think you can just search Lewis Ryan on Letterboxd and I'll come up. So now we've done our plugs. And now I guess we should wrap up the episode. I guess, uh, do you have any highlights or lowlights from the episode? Do you want to do like favorite moment, least favorite moment? Yeah, I, I think my favorite moment might actually be like the countdown scene where you still don't really know what's happening. I, I just think that part's really well done. Least favorite moment? I don't know. I kind of, I like so, some of the stuff around Elias, like kind of, kind of bummed me out. It's just like... Uh, <laughs> Made you depressed? I, I don't know. It was just kind of like weird. I think my favorite scene is definitely the scene of the Bernsteins talking about Daniel when he's out of the room, worried yeah. for their safety. It's definitely a very terrifying moment. Yes. And my low light is probably the scene I talked about earlier with the, the V playset in an otherwise <laughs> flawless video experience that just stands. That, I mean, literally, it's like a commercial for like a product that doesn't exist. You know what I mean? Yeah. I guess one final question. Do you Are you glad you watched this in March of 2021 as opposed to March of 2017? <laughs> I, I wish I would have watched it. I probably wish I would have watched it during the Trump administration, if that's what you're getting at. It's just, it's it's really shocking, <laughs> just everything that's that's happened. Yes. How, uh, how much... After the attack on the Capitol is also good context. So, yeah. Uh, if you want to watch this, you will find lots of things in common with some stuff that's happened in the last, you know, five, six years. Yes. Lots of, lots of... Relevant, always timeless messages and wisdom can be found in V, all, all parts of it. And it, it just goes to prove that, you know, resistance works. Things. Can... I mean, I don't know that yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, some, some things have changed since last year. <laughs> yeah, yes. We'll see how it turns out for the humans on Earth in V. Oh, God. <laughs> So I guess it's time to, for us to sign off and implore you to tune in next time where we'll be covering part two of the miniseries. And then in the weeks following, we'll be covering the final battle, all three parts. So make sure to tune in. As I said, I'm Lewis Ryan, and it was my pleasure to be host tonight. And I am Lars Emerson, and it's been great to be here, Lewis. Thanks for having me. No problem, Lars. I'm happy to do it, and I hope we can do this again real soon. All right. Thank you all for listening to The Visitors Might Be Listening, the unofficial podcast about the...